Well, good morning again. What a joy it is for me to be with you this morning. I was thinking as I was preparing that, you know, this is one of my, my favorite places to be able to worship the Lord with fellow saints. And, you know, truly it is a preview of future glory, right? We, we're going to be praising the Lord. And as we talked about even in our own group this week, there's going to be lots to do in heaven. But a great aspect, a wonderful aspect is we'll be able to praise the Lord in, in His presence for thousands of years and time won't even, won't even matter as we see the glories of Jesus Christ. Well, if you will, turn me in your Bibles to chapter 5 of James, if you're not already there. And this morning, we're going to be dealing with the topic of really wealth, the beginning of the topic of wealth. We won't finish it today. In fact, we won't even barely scratch the surface as we deal with the topic over the next couple weeks. Um, But this morning specifically, and I've titled my sermon, titled my message, Woe to the Ungodly, because... James begins his letter like an Old Testament prophet, begins this, excuse me, this chapter, woe to you. He booms out, woe to those that are, that are rich and ungodly in this world. And if I was to ask many of you and say, hey, would, would you like to be rich? Most of you, would, you wouldn't say, uh, yeah, nah, you wouldn't say it, the traditional Aussie response. Very few of you would say that. In fact, some of you, most of you would say, well, you know, I think I could handle it. You know, let me try to handle it, please. You know, you would probably say, well, I'd love to be financially well off. But Jesus actually gives a different picture. Jesus actually says in Matthew 6, 24, that no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and he will love the other, or he will be devoted to one, and he will despise the other. Because you are not able to serve God and money. Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You ask the man on the street, the unbeliever, their desire is to get rich. After all, we we see people weekly playing the lottery, right? You want to get rich. You want to have money. and And they place their security in financial wealth. Financial security is what they're after. But the reality is they're, they're no more secure than anyone else. They're ultimately, even the rich, Psalm 49 says, the rich cannot buy their salvation, their redemption. Psalm 49, 7 and 8, no man can by any means redeem his brother or give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of his soul is costly and he should cease trying forever. Money can't buy salvation. Well, when you think about financial security, really it's financial insecurity because it could be gone at any moment. Unless you think these verses are only applied to those of the rich of this world, and you're not rich, 
want to remind you that living in Australia, this is the second richest country in the world per capita. If you don't believe me, Google it, right? We're a rich country. Most of the world has far less than we do. The treasure, what we treasure is demonstrated where our heart is. That's why Jesus says, store up treasures in heaven, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In our passage today, James comes out firing, like I said, he's like an Old Testament prophet. Woe, woe to the ungodly rich who misuse wealth and oppress the poor. Woe to those who misuse the resources that they have for their own ends. He's denouncing these rich. He's telling them of their their judgment. Their judgment is coming. Now, while some of these rich, and you may be asking me, why would he address this part of the book to unbelievers? Why would he address something knowing that Christians are going to be hearing it? Well, if you remember in James chapter 2, the rich from time to time do actually come into the assembly. If you remember, James told them not to show favoritism. The same rich that oppressed them, they were giving the reserved in the best spots in their assembly. So the rich from time to time would come in and they would perfectly hear this message and, and see that their doom is imminent and repent of their sins. But primarily, James has Christians in mind for hearing this message because he wants you, he wants these Christians to be comforted by the fact that the rich and unjust and ungodly of this world will face ultimate justice. Because many of you, and especially these believers in the time of James, would have been mistreated by those in power. They would have been robbed impugned, slandered, maybe even persecuted. They would have found no justice because the wealthy were able to buy off judges. They would have worked and not received their just wages that were agreed upon. And so it would have been a great comfort for these believers, a great comfort for us to know that God will see justice done. But he also writes so that we would not, as believers, envy the wealthy of this world. How easy it is for us to think, if only I had more wealth, I would be in a better situation. And we think about all the things that that we could do with that wealth. And now, even in our, even the deepest recesses of our hearts, we would admit to ourselves, we would use most of that wealth our own pleasures and own desires and our own families. And so James wants you to understand, he wants you to be comforted knowing that God is just and that justice will be done, and he wants you to be aware of the ungodly attitudes towards wealth. Now, we won't make it through this text, like I said earlier, this week, but let's go ahead and look at it today. Chapter 5, verse 1 of the book of James. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust 
will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields, which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure, and you have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. So James opened up, opens up this passage in verse 1, and he says, Come now. And that's the same terminology, the same word phrase used in verse 13 of chapter 4. James wants to draw their attention. He's saying, listen up. Pay attention to what I'm going to say. And he says, you rich. Now, I want you to understand before we really delve into this that, that James is not condemning all rich people. Right? In our society, we have the, the view of the 1% and the 2% as, as they've all robbed and they've all stolen. In fact, our, our income tax, both in the United States and Australia, is designed in some ways to, to punish the rich. Right? They pay an exorbitant amount of taxes. Well, James is not condemning having wealth. In fact, most of you know wealthy people from the Bible. Abraham was very wealthy. Job, very wealthy on both sides of his trial. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus in John chapter 3, was very wealthy. Joseph of Arimathea, who paid for the tomb of our Lord, was very wealthy. Barnabas, the son of encouragement in Acts, was very wealthy. King David, King Solomon, and on and on. There are wealthy men in God's Word. Proverbs 10, says, It is the blessing of the Lord that makes rich, and He adds no sorrow to it. You see, there were Christians that had wealth, even in the church that James was addressing. If you remember in James chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, he says, But the brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high position, and the rich man is to glory in his humiliation. There were rich, there were wealthy people within the church. It is not wealth itself that James condemns. After all, in second, excuse me, in Timothy, Paul actually says it's, it's not what money is the root of all evil, as we often misquote. It's the love of money. So having wealth in and of itself is not bad. It's okay to save for the future. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 14, Now for the third time I am ready to come to you, and I will not be a burden. For I seek not what is yours, but you. For children are not obligated to save up for their parents, but their parents for their children. He takes a, a financial principle and applies it to the, the spiritual situation. He's their father and they're his children, and he doesn't want to be a burden to them. Ecclesiastes 5.19, Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them and to accept His lot and rejoice in His toil, this is the gift of God. What you have from a wealth standpoint is God's gift to you. He distributes as He chooses. God gives each to measure a measure of wealth. 
But what James is condemning here is not wealthy people in, in their totality, but he's condemning the ungodly rich, those who use and, or misuse rather their finances and their wealth for their own sinful pursuits and desires. They hoard wealth. They use it on their pleasures. They use their wealth to, to achieve their ends through measures of even injustice in the courts, as James says later on in verses 2 through 6. You see, wealth is, is like a fire, right? It's a tool for us to use. It can be very good and profitable and necessary. But when used or misused, it can be damaging and destructive to those around it. You see, miseries are coming, James says, and, and this is where he really gets into the comfort because these believers have been mistreated by these ungodly wealthy. We know that they have been withheld or their pay has been withheld, as James says it later on. We know that they've agreed to work and the rich were saying, yeah, no, I'm sorry, I don't have it today. Come back tomorrow. And they were starving and it was causing the distress in their families and even death. We know that the rich were mistreating them in, in the system of justice. And they would go to corrupt judges and, and pay to take the poor's land. These were common practices in the days of the first century. Because there were massive landowners. And the majority of people were lower, the poor, middle class. But James says, oh, woe, come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. James says, your miseries. He's talking about judgment. And he says, judgment is coming. Your time is coming near. It's the same word that James uses in chapter 4, verse 9, when he says to be miserable and mourn when he's calling for repentance. The word miserable, if you remember, we said it's be wretched. James says there's a wretched state for you coming. There's great distress for you, oh ungodly people who misuse your wealth. Now I want you to notice that it's, it's a singular you. He says that your miseries, the judgment is coming upon you singular. God evaluates each and every person, and His judgment upon the ungodly is a personal judgment in the lake of fire, but there's an aspect to their misery that is a personalized aspect. Notice also that the word misery is plural. There's going to be many aspects to their individual judgment. It's a judgment in the lake of fire, and within that aspect of judgment... There's going to be a degree of torment related to their use and misuse of wealth and how they've treated people. Just as for us as believers, there's going to be a degree of rewards as we stand before Christ at the Bema judgment seat, not to have our salvation questioned, but our faithfulness examined. So James says, look, there's miseries. These are the, the fires of hell. So the miseries that are coming upon them are the, the final judgment that await the ungodly of this world. 
It's God's intent with the lake of fire to destroy sin and evil once and for all. What a comfort that is for us and believers. We, we live in a fallen, sinful world where we see injustice all around us. We see people mistreated and abused. We see the murder of babies in the millions. Sacrifice to the, the gods of self-indulgence. The fires of hell await these unbelievers. And as I dwelt on this topic and I, and I thought about those miseries, I realized there's so, lack, so much of a lack of teaching on what hell really is. We speak about hell and you see it in, in movies and TV and, and you think of a devil with a pitchfork. We were talking in home group this week and, and one, of the, the, one of the ladies in the home group said that she was talking to a friend and they want to name their son Lucifer. Because they thought it was a cool name and they enjoyed the, the TV show. Apparently, there's a TV show. So I kept thinking and, and I, I ran across a survey. Now, this is a survey of Americans because they don't do surveys in Australia, apparently. <laughs> but this is a survey of Americans and 71% of Americans believe in hell. It's pretty good. But listen to this. Only one half of 1% believe they're going there. Now, when you think about heaven, 76% believe in heaven, and apparently it's going to be a lot more crowded because 64% believe they're going. But I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about what hell is going to be like. Because we want to think about the miseries of those that are, that are coming, for those that, that are ungodly of this world... I want you to understand what hell is really going to be like. Not the way the world describes it, but I want to show you just how painful, how terrible it's going to be. Because it should be a motivating factor for us in our gospel evangelism. It should also cause us to examine our own hearts. In a group this size, there probably are unbelievers. I've been in seminary and I watched a seminary student come to the Lord who had grown up in church all his life. And so we want to examine ourselves as well. But if you will, flip over the Revelation, the book of Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, I'm going to be reading in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne. And him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which are in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name is not found written in the book of life, he is thrown into the lake of fire. This is the great judgment of all those who have not accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. This is the destiny that awaits. And when we think about 
hell, we think about the fact that the lake of fire in hell is separation from God's presence. That's what hell is. It's separation. Matthew 13, verses 41 and 42, The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all offensive things and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, this is the great chapter. I'm going to talk about the end times. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. And after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and away from the glory of His power. Separation. You see, they're separated from the Lord. They're separated from God for all eternity. They've desired to be separate from God throughout all their life. That's what ungodly means. Ungodly is is an atheistic or an agnostic approach to life. That separation in this life will continue for all eternity. There is no hope for salvation for those who have died. There's no such thing as purgatory. Once It is appointed to man to die once and then face judgment. Not only is there a separation, there's a, a torment. Jesus likened the fires of hell to the valley of Hinnom or Gehenna outside of Jerusalem. That valley was a garbage dump. They'd been cursed by God because the people of the ancient Israelites had sacrificed their children to the god Moloch there. And so that valley was cursed. It was a refuge dump. They would dump refuse and trash and rubbish. And they would dump even the unclaimed bodies of the poor. It was a, it was a burning stench, that would, a fire that would never go out. In fact, Jesus says in Mark 9, 48, He says, Where the, where the worm does not die... And you could imagine the maggots and the worms as they eat away continually at the dung heap, the trash and the rubbish. Hell's going to be a place where the worm does not die. Where there's going to be a, an eating of flesh, a devouring of flesh that, that never ceases. It's going to be a place where there'll be eating but no consumption. Jesus also says in Mark chapter 9, verse 48, where the fire is not quenched, just as the fires of the valley of Hinnom never went out, the fires of hell will continually burn and burn and burn. Read a quote from an Italian preacher in the Middle Ages. He says, fire, fire. That is the recompense for your perversity, you hardened sinners. Fire, fire, the fires of hell. Fire in your eyes, fire in your mouth, fire in your guts, fire in your throat, fire in your nostrils, fire inside and fire outside, fire beneath and fire above, fire in every part. Ah, miserable folk, you will be like rags burning in the middle of this fire. There's torments. It's not soul sleep. 
It's not annihilation. They will be conscious. Those in hell will be conscious of the burning, be conscious of the worm that does not die. That's not enough. There's also going to be great darkness. They've rejected the light. Jesus Christ, they rejected the light of the gospel in this life, and they will have darkness forever. Jude 1, verse 13, describing the ungodly, says they are wild waves of the sea, casting up their foam of their shame, their wandering stars. And listen to this, from whom the blackness of darkness has been reserved forever. First John 1 John 1.5, God is light and there's no darkness in Him at all, but there's darkness forever in hell away from God's presence. So you could just imagine a worm that is constantly eating and devouring, a fire that is burning with no light. Hell, you get a bigger picture of hell. It's not the devil in a pitchfork and they're having a good time. But hell is also... Not only is it separation from God and torment, it's great darkness, but it's also everlasting. Because one thing that we read in Revelation chapter 20 is that just as believers, we receive a new glorified body that is able to withstand the glory of God's presence. Unbelievers will receive a new resurrected body that they can withstand the horrors of hell. It is an everlasting, it is called the eternal death or the second death. There's no reincarnation. Matthew 25, 41, Jesus then will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire which have been prepared for the devil and his angels. The wicked and ungodly of this world who misuse their wealth and misuse their resources and mistreat others, they sin against God, will face eternal punishment alongside devil and his demons. You see, hell, the lake of fire, is God's final act of ultimate judgment. John 3, 36, whoever believes in God, excuse me, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. So many people in our society, they have an issue with hell because they've got a low view of God. They imagine God is love and they take that attribute and they dissect it from all these other attributes. God is infinitely loving but infinitely holy. He's infinitely just. You can't dissect, you can't take one attribute away from God without the others. They're all interconnected. He has a loving holiness, a holy love, a just love. People imagine God as themselves, they, they, they bring God down to, to human level and they apply their human sensibilities to God and say, well, God couldn't send someone to hell. That's not loving. But they forget about God's holiness because in God's infinite holiness, there is an infinite amount of sin that we have committed against Him. And if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, that sin will be paid toward you in the future in the lake of fire. We also, in our society, we, we've rejected the idea of retribution, of retributive justice. 
In our society, we don't call prisons prisons anymore. We call them what? Correctional facilities. The idea is we want to reconciliate and rehab people away from what they've done evil. And sin isn't looked at as something that needs punishment, except for very serious crimes. And even that amazes me how often those, those serious crimes, those serious criminals get out of jail early. God will repay evil. God will see that justice is done. We, we think about hell and we don't, we don't glory in it in the sense that we say, aha, look what's coming to you, but we, we feel a sadness, a sadness for those that are destined for hell. We feel a joy that we have escaped the fires. We have been saved from the penalty of sin by Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. It should give us a, a, an apetus behind our what? Our evangelism. But James writes this and he says, Weep for the miseries that are coming upon you because he wants to comfort these believers. They've been through great injustice. Some of you have been through great injustice in your lives. You've been sinned against by the ungodly, the the wealthy, the powerful of this world. What a comfort it is to, to know that God is just. And that when we are with the Lord, there won't be any ungodly, any wicked. They will receive just what they deserve. Just what we deserved apart from Jesus Christ. So James says, look, weep and howl. The idea of weeping is is they should be weeping now. They should understand the judgment that's coming. If they're here and they're listening, they they should be weeping the utter despair, knowing that the eternal fires of hell are coming. The idea for wailing is is a crying. They should be overwhelmed at their loss and the coming judgment. I read the other day in California that the wealthy can actually upgrade their jail cells for about $82 a day from minor crimes. You don't have to get in there and be in there with the riffraff, right? You can upgrade to, if you've got enough money, you can even have your own private cell. You can have an iPad and and a laptop and you can do your sentence. Nice clean beds, clean rooms. It's more like a day spa than really it is a jail. They actually take first come, first serve. So if you commit crimes in California, you need to apply quickly. But look, it it seems often in our society, in our lives, in this world, that the rich get away with sin. They get away with injustice. You look at the Epstein situation and all the famous and powerful people that went to his island. And only now the, the... list is coming out. But ultimately, if they don't face judgment in this life, they will face it in the next. The rich can't escape through their wealth, their prestige, their power. They're getting no special treatment. There's no chauffeured service in hell for those that are wealthy. Believers, be comforted. Be comforted knowing that God will rectify injustice. Unfortunately, it may not be in this life, but there is the principle of reversal of fortunes. Flip over to Luke 
chapter 16 with me. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Many of you know this story. We're not sure if it's actually a, a story or a parable. Jesus wasn't, uh, wasn't very clear. But verse 19, now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. And now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment. And he saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and he said, Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. And as the, here it is. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. It's the biblical principle, reversal of fortunes, when those that have less in this life and have a hard time and face persecution and suffering and trials, and when we get to heaven, there's going to be a reversal. There's a reward and a blessing where those that have had much in this life, they will face torment. Though you suffer injustice and harm, know that God will see justice done. You may not see it. But trust in God, trust in His goodness. Read through the Psalms over and over as I've, I've studied the Psalms through my pastor's comments. You see over and over that God will vindicate the righteous and He will judge the ungodly. Remember the words of Peter, the Lord knows how to rescue the, res excuse me, the, rescue the, the godly from temptation or trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Look, God hasn't promised us an easy life. You will suffer at times because you are Christian, but God has promised that He will never leave you or forsake you, and He promised that justice will be done. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your destiny is sure. You have a seat reserved for you in hell apart from God and His people. Your only hope it's Jesus Christ. Your only hope is to humble yourself, confessing and repenting of your sins and believing that Jesus Christ died on a cross in your spot, taking the wrath of God that you deserved and bearing your penalty. Submit to Him. And by the way, the reason that if the rich, the reason that those ungodly of this world haven't fallen into hell already is just because of God's patience. The great Jonathan Edwards has said, there is nothing that keeps wicked men at any one moment out of hell but the mere pleasure of God. Make no mistake, apart from Christ, every man and every woman is wicked. They live ungodly lives, acknowledging not their Creator, but they live as if they were gods themselves, masters of their own universe, seeking their own ends. Also understand that apart from Christ, 
Everyone is under condemnation to hell. John 3, 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. We need to fear God. And in that Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. For those that are ungodly and rich in this world, there is no, there's nothing that you can do. Your riches cannot buy salvation. No amount of altruistic works can redeem you from the fires that await you. You hear that men go to hell for unbelief and let in your heart you believe that you're different and you're better. You trust in your own strength and your finances and you trust in your own wisdom. But you're a fool because the hell, the lake of fire will be full of foolish men and women who who thought they could ignore God's justice. God calls all to repent. That is the eternal gospel. Worship the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins and believe in Him. Because repentance matters. Even now, God holds ungodly men and women over the pit of hell. And as Edwards has said, all that preserves them at every moment is the mere arbitrary will and unobliged patience of an incensed God. There may be some of you listening today that feel this great weight on your hearts. The dawning realization that yet you're not a Christian. Don't let embarrassment or fear lead you to the pit of hell. Today is the day of salvation. Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Jesus says in Matthew 16, 24, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. You humble yourselves, you you deny that you can save yourself, that there's any goodness in you, any righteousness. You repent of your sins, you, you turn away from them, you obey Christ's word. And then you live your life following Christ as His disciple, loving Him above everything else. Just remember, you will get no second chance. There's no purgatory. There's no reincarnation. There is no way to to change your eternal state after you have died. Hebrews 9, 27, again, it is appointed for men to die once and then comes judgment. As I was thinking about this passage and just reading, I came across an interesting story. It said in 1923, a very important meeting was held at the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Chicago. Attending that meeting were nine of the world's most successful men. Charles Schwab, a steel magnate. Samuel Insull, the president of the largest utility company. Howard Hobson, the president of the largest gas company, Arthur Cutton, the greatest wheat speculator, Richard Whitney, president of the New York Stock Exchange, Albert Fall, secretary of the interior, Leon Fraser, president of the Bank of International Settlements, Jesse Livermore, the great bear on Wall Street, and Ivan Kruger, head of the most powerful monopoly. But 25 years later, Charles Schwab had died in bankruptcy, having lived on borrowed money for the last five years of his life. 
Samuel Insel had died a fugitive from justice in Paris with 20 cents in his pocket. Howard Hobson was insane. Arthur Cutton had died of a heart attack after being indicted on charges of tax evasion. Richard Whitney had spent time in Sing Sing prison. And Albert Fall was discredited by a scandal and he served jail time. Jesse Livermore, Ivan Kruger, and Leon Fraser had all committed suicide. You see, wealth is not a security. The ungodly in this world, their life is... Short. Our lives are short. Know, first of all, believers, as we talk about hell and the judgment that awaits, know that God loves you with an everlasting love. Nothing can take you out of His hand. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, know that your destiny is secure. Now, we will stand before Christ's judgment seat to have our works examined and our faithfulness examined, but we will not face the fires of hell. We are promised eternal life. Anyone that believes in what? Christ shall not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, 16. Romans 5, 8. But God proves His love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from the wrath through Him? We're not destined for wrath. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that Jesus has rescued us from the wrath to come. Romans 8.1, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Believers also know that God will vindicate you in, in the next life. All the injustice of this world will be made right All those that have robbed and hurt and mistreated and abused and persecuted and raped and slandered and killed, God will see that justice is done. Take comfort in this fact. Trust in God and His goodness, knowing that we live not for this world, but for the world to come. Our affections and our our will and our desire should be focused on the things above and not in the things of this life. Unbelievers, you need to know that any moment your life could end and that you will give account for your sin. You will have no excuses and nowhere to hide from the wrath of God. God knows everything you've done. He knows your heart. He knows your desires. All the secret sins that you've committed, God knows. And the books will be opened and your life will be laid bare before a holy and just God. James tells the ungodly rich here in this passage that they should weep and they should mourn over the judgment, the miseries that are coming. Believers, take comfort that God is just. Unbelievers, know that God is just. If you're here this morning and you'd like to talk to someone, talk with someone about coming to a saving relationship to Jesus Christ, and you'd like to know more, you can come see me after the service. Come see Benji's one of our elders. Steve's one of our elders. Peter in the back's one of our elders. They'd be, they would love to talk with you about coming to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Believers have so much more to say about financial wealth. We'll get to it next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can be comforted knowing that the ungodly of this world, ungodly rich, and those that are 
mistreat others, sin against others with impunity, that have wealth and power and fame, that it seems like they get away with so much in this life. But we know, Lord, that there's an end. We are comforted knowing that you are a God of justice, that you are a holy God. But Lord, lest we become too full of ourselves, we know, Father, that we were in the same state and that we deserved your wrath. We deserved the fires of hell ourselves. But be it for God's grace, your grace, in saving us through the wonderful blood of Jesus Christ. We do not boast in our strength and our wealth and our knowledge, but we boast in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We boast that we know Him and Him alone for our salvation. Lord, I pray that hell today, as we've talked about it, will be a warning to to us as well that time is short and those around us are destined for eternal judgment. Help us to be bold in, in sharing the good news that there's been a remedy for sin, a remedy for your judgment. That remedy is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we, we thank you for your, your word. We thank you that we can see what's going to happen at the end. We thank you that we can understand it and that we know that you are just and you are holy and that your love for us knows no bounds. Lord, we, we are comforted by the fact that instead of hell, we, we are destined for eternal glories in your presence. Oh, what a wonderful day it will be in heaven with you. No more sin, no more pain, no more injustice. Father, we glory in you and we give glory to you. We thank you for this time. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.